through books of the Bible starting in the first chapter and going to the last chapter and covering everything in between. So we're in the middle of Luke's Gospel, chapter 9, verses 23 to 27. This morning's passage flows right out of last week's passage. So we're going to start in verse 18. Start in verse 18. Then we're going to read, we're going to focus on verses 23 to 27. Luke chapter 9. Verses 23 to 27, we're going to start reading in verse 18. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church. Now it happened that as Jesus was praying alone, the disciples were with Him. And He asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah. And others, that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then He said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And Jesus strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And He said to all, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow Me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray together as we ask God to bless the reading and the preaching of His Word. Let's pray. Father, You are so very good to us. We ask that You would draw near to us now by Your Holy Spirit. And that You would give us, Father, ears to hear and eyes to see and a heart to believe what it is that Your Word has said. Father, we know that when we read the Scriptures, we are hearing the very voice of God. And so, with a trembling sense of humility, Father, we ask for ears to hear that we would live as Your people. Father, please keep me from error. Please give Your people discernment so that we would be known, Father, as a people who stand firmly on the truth. Lord, help us, we pray. We pray this confidently in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, the cross of Jesus Christ both saves us and shapes us as His followers. That's the truth that we began to consider last week, and it's the truth that we're going to continue to focus on this morning. The cross of Jesus Christ both saves us and shapes us as His followers. Let's consider both of those perspectives for just a moment. It was at the cross that the Lord Jesus shed His blood to make atonement for His people. As Jesus hung there on the cross, the wrath of God was poured out upon Him so that Jesus paid with His blood for the sins of God's people once and for all. And therefore, the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ stand as the bedrock confession of the church. There is no condemnation now for those who believe because 
that condemnation was poured out upon Jesus and dealt with forever at the cross. This is what we mean when we say that the cross of Christ saves us. It's His work and not ours that brings us into fellowship with God. And at the same time, the cross of Christ now shapes us so that our lives as Christians identify with and display the reality of Christ crucified. As Christians, we are not to take our cues from the world, which prioritizes the immediate and demands that you avoid anything that's even remotely costly. Instead, as Christians, we take our cues from a crucified Savior who endured suffering and faithfulness to God and with the confident hope of glory that is to come. So this is what we mean when we say that the cross of Christ now shapes how we live. And friends, it is this second perspective that demands our attention this morning. And it does so because this is how Jesus calls us to discipleship. I hope you heard it as we read, but there's a very deliberate progression to Jesus' teaching in this passage. Notice how it flows in the text. Look at verse 20. Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ of God. And then immediately, Jesus begins to teach His disciples what kind of Christ He will be. He is the Christ who suffers and rises again in fulfillment of God's will. So Jesus is the Christ who goes to the cross. But then notice the transition that Jesus makes verse 23. Jesus goes from describing His suffering to describing the disciples' call to take up their cross as well. Do you see that progression? Christ who goes to the cross, who calls His people to the cross. It's very deliberate. Jesus is the Christ who suffers, and right away, He calls His people to take up the cross as well. Friends, the point I'm trying to make is this. If we want to think about discipleship the way that Jesus does, then we must think in terms of the cross. There's no other way to think about being a disciple of Jesus. It is Jesus Himself who defines discipleship as taking up the cross and following Him by faith. And so, we are in good company when we say that the cross of Christ both saves us and shapes us. This is how Jesus Himself defines your life as a Christian. Take up the cross and follow Me. Of course, this raises the necessary question, the one that I want us to think about. What then does cross-centered discipleship look like in the life of a Christian? If the cross is supposed to shape how we live, then what specifically does that shape entail? Well, friends, that's what we're going to consider together this morning. Following on from Jesus in Luke chapter 9, I want to draw your attention to four marks of cross-centered discipleship. Four ways that the cross shapes how we follow the Lord. Let's consider those together. Mark number one. Cross-centered discipleship denies self in submission to Christ. It denies self in submission to Christ. Notice the very clear command that Jesus issues to all of His disciples, not just Peter, but to all of His disciples. Verse 23, And Jesus said to all, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself. So fundamental to Christian discipleship is the call to self-denial. 
Now, as I say that, we should acknowledge how deeply at odds this command is with the impulse of the world as well as the impulses of our own heart. Every age in human history has had to deal with selfishness. But our day in particular presents some unique challenges. You could say that we live in the age of the almighty me. The almighty me. Where the self has triumphed and the self now reigns supreme. Think about it. We're told to pursue things that will make ourselves happy. And even more significantly, we're told to judge truth claims on the basis of how those claims relate to ourselves. So we've removed God from the center of life, and in His place, we have put the most insidious and devastating idol of all, self. And the result is that in our culture, something is right if I consider it to be right. And something is wrong if I consider it to be in any way inhibiting what I want for myself. Again, this has always been the temptation in our day. But there has, there, this has always been a temptation in the history of the world. But in our day, there's been a shift. So it's not just that self-oriented thinking exists. That's always been true. It's now that self-oriented thinking is considered to be healthy and right and good. Do you want to be the best version? Then think about yourself a lot. That's what our culture says. And into this very me-centric world, Jesus issues a clear command. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. You see, discipleship, following Jesus, demands that we turn away from a self-oriented life and we embrace a life as defined by what God has done in Jesus Christ. Friends, this is actually the starting point of true saving faith. Think about it. Where does, where does saving faith begin? With the confession that I cannot save myself, but that only Christ can save a sinner like me. Self-denial then is bound up with becoming a follower of Christ. It's bound up with becoming a Christian. But here's what we often miss, brothers and sisters. Here's the point that we often overlook. This self-denial must now continue throughout the rest of the Christian life. Every day. Christ calls me to, to turn from the pursuit of me and respond by faith to who He is, to what He's done, and what He's communicated in His Word. Every day, the Christian life requires self-denial. And this works out in numerous ways. To deny myself means that I am not the determiner of what is true. Christ is. And so I submit my thinking to His Word. To deny myself means admitting that my desires are not always good and they're very rarely right. God is the one who reveals where life is found. And so I must follow the wisdom of God's Word even when it goes against what feels very natural to me. And to deny myself means recognizing that even my feelings are often misleading. So instead of basing my life on how I feel, I choose by faith to live on the basis of what God has said 
is true. You see, it's all-encompassing and it's absolutely countercultural. From what I think to what I pursue to how I respond to my feelings, self-denial is fundamental to discipleship. There is no discipleship without it. To follow Christ means to deny ourselves. We belong to another, to Christ. And therefore, the most basic confession of a disciple is not me, but you, Lord. Every day. Not me, but you. Now, if that sounds like a difficult way to live, that's because it is. <laughs> Notice the very next phrase that Jesus uses in verse 23 to explain this call to self-denial. Again, verse 23. If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. Friends, this is where we need to remember what the cross was in Jesus' day. In 2020, for us, the cross is almost exclusively a religious symbol, which is why we have it on the front of our pulpit and we wear it around our neck. And Those things aren't bad. It's almost exclusively a religious symbol. But in Jesus' day, the cross was a picture of suffering. The cross was a means of execution. The cross was associated with the power and authority of Rome. So when Jesus tells His disciples to take up the cross, He's calling them to die. He's putting discipleship in a very alarming perspective. Now, what exactly is that perspective? What is Jesus getting at here? What does it mean to take up the cross? Well, first and foremost, we should understand that taking up the cross means enduring suffering for the sake of Christ. It means to endure suffering in identification with Jesus. For the Christian, the call to take up the cross is the call to endure hardship, rejection, and difficulty. And to do so because you belong to Christ. Just as the Lord suffered in faithfulness to His Father, so also the Lord now calls us to follow in His footsteps. We take up the cross as a way of saying to the world, I'm with the crucified one. I belong to Him. I identify with Him. If you want to put a label on me, it's the label of Him. Christian. Dying on the cross with my Lord. And so, we should just settle it in our minds, brothers and sisters, right now, that allegiance to Christ is costly. Allegiance to Christ is costly. Commitment to the Lord Jesus will bring suffering. Following the Lord will mean reject, re rejection. Do we believe that? Have you come to grips with that reality? It's, it, it's not an if, it's a when in the Bible. Have you come to grips with that reality? Or have you gotten caught up in the idea that Christianity ought to just be comfortable? Following Christ is costly. Allegiance to Jesus is costly. Just consider the lives of the men in this chapter who are standing there listening to Jesus, excluding Judas, the betrayer. Ten of eleven of the remaining disciples gave up their lives as martyrs for Christ. You want to follow Jesus? Their life is giving you the shape of the church's history. 
Discipleship entails that we suffer alongside of our Lord. And brothers and sisters, we we ought to pray that God would strengthen us for such things. None of us is ready for that. None of us is sufficient in ourselves. None of us are capable of doing that on our own. So we ought to pray. The wise Christian prepares ahead of time for what the Scriptures say will surely come. So we ought to pray for the courage to stand firm with our Lord. Do you pray to that end? We ought to. To take up the cross means to endure hardship for the sake of Christ. There's another perspective on taking up the cross that we ought to consider. Notice that little word in verse 23, the little word daily. (laughs) Take up the cross daily. How often do we have to take up the cross and follow Jesus? We have to do so every day. We do so daily. Listen, I I find this extremely encouraging. Cross-centered discipleship is a daily endeavor. It's not merely a decision that we make at one point in time. No, it's the confession of my life each and every day. So apply this to your own discipleship. Seriously, apply this to your own discipleship. Think about your own walk with the Lord. If following the Lord seems to be a daily fight to die to yourself and to trust God's Word, then guess what, friends? You're doing it right. You're doing it right. Take up the cross win every day. So if the fight of faith seems to be a fight to die to yourself, then then you're doing it right. We never outgrow this call. Every day the Christian is called to deny himself and to submit again to the Lordship of Christ. So be encouraged, brothers and sisters. Be encouraged. If you're fighting hard for the faith today, then you're on the road of discipleship following the crucified one. So that's the first and foundational mark. Cross-centered discipleship denies self in submission to Christ. Let's look at mark number two, which gives us the reason why self-denial is good for our souls. Mark number two, cross-centered discipleship weighs today in light of the last day. It weighs today in light of the last day. Verse 24, Jesus explains why self-denial is essential. Look at His explanation. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for My sake will save it. So Jesus is drawing a stark contrast here between those who value today above all else and those who weigh today in light of eternity. This is the dividing line of Humanity, you might say. There are some people who hear the call to discipleship and they conclude that life in the present is too precious to waste on something like self-denial. Taking up the cross is too costly compared to the comforts and values and esteem of this present world. For such people, today is, is all they can see. Just right now. And that's where the tragedy comes in, according to Jesus. Ultimately, where does allegiance to self lead you? It leads you to lose the very thing that you love the most. Your own life. Your own self-oriented, self-directed life. That's how idols work, remember? 
Idols demand everything from you, and in the end, they leave you with nothing. And the idol of self is the most demanding and devastating idol of all. So if you live for today, sure, you may have an easier road in the present. Your today won't include taking up the cross to suffer with Jesus, but, but the cost of that easier today is eternity. The cost of that easier road is eternity. That's the tragedy of those who reject the call to discipleship, those who reject the Gospel. They mortgage eternity for the fleeting, temporary ease of today. Amazingly, however, the reverse of this tragedy is also true. By God's grace, those who embrace the call of discipleship find life in the end. You lose your life now, to find life in the end. You see, this is an important point to remember in thinking about self-denial for a Christian. Self-denial is not an end in and of itself. Let me say that again. Self-denial is not an end in and of itself. Jesus doesn't call us to self-denial because it is some inherently nobler way of life. No, self-denial for a Christian always has eternity in view. I take up my cross today. Why? Because I trust that communion with God is better than anything today can offer me. I take up the cross today because I believe that glory with Christ, communion with Christ, is actually what I'm made for. I'm made for glory forever with God, so I'll deny today to get that. You see, self-denial is not an end in and of itself. It's, it's self-denial for something better, namely, God. You get God in the end. Do you see the difference, friends, with how we normally think about self-denial? We tend to think of self-denial exclusively as a negative thing. It's just about saying no to all the bad stuff. And Jesus would say, no, actually, self-denial is saying good to the better stuff, namely, God. God. You lose your life today, and in the end, what do you get? Eternal life with the triune God. Fellowship in His presence. Satisfaction from His glory. That's self-denial for a Christian, brothers and sisters. It's choosing by faith to embrace something better. Embrace God and the life that is found only in Him. So as you read verse 24, I want you just to picture a set of scales. A set of scales. One side is today, and on the other side is eternity. And Jesus' point is that you cannot put anything in today's side that would outweigh eternity's side. In fact, notice verse 25 where Jesus says precisely this, For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Now that should get your attention. At least I pray it does. You can live for today and gain the entire world. All the power, all the possessions, all the pleasure, all the prestige. You can live for today and gain the entire world and still, you would be a fool to take the world at the cost of your soul. You would be a fool. That's Jesus' point. To be a disciple of Christ means that you weigh today not in terms of what's easy or comfortable or what feels good to you. The disciple weighs today in light of the last day, in light of eternity. 
So which side of the scale are you weighing most heavily, friends? Which side of the scale are you weighing most heavily, today or eternity? Listen, I don't know where everyone is this morning, but if you are here today and you've not trusted in Christ to save you from your sin, then this is the call that you need to hear. Don't mortgage your eternal soul for a fleeting, temporary thing called today. Don't mortgage eternity for the present. Listen to the wisdom of Jesus Christ here in God's Word. Confess your sin. Confess that you have sought to live only for yourself. And right now, by grace, turn from that sin and embrace the work of Christ for you. Deny that you can save yourself and take up the call to trust Christ and to follow Him on the road of discipleship. That's what it means to become a Christian, friends. By God's grace, think about today, not in terms of what you can get right now, not in terms of how you can save yourself, but think about life from the perspective of eternity and trust in Jesus Christ. And, and listen, this applies to, to Christians as well. If you, if you are here today and you are trusting in Christ, if you are a believer who's repenting of your sins and trusting in Christ alone to save, the question still applies to you. Are you living for today in hopes of finding life in the things that this world can offer? Or are you living for eternity? Are you living for today? Are you compromising your convictions for the sake of your career? No job is worth it. Are you prioritizing your pursuits at the expense of your family? Or at the expense of your commitment to the church? Are you bucking against the place that God has you in hopes of getting a life that fits more closely with what you want for yourself? Are you frazzled and frantic and stretched thin because you're running from one thing to the next, desperately looking for that one thing, that one experience that will settle the sense of restlessness that's down there deep in your soul? Friends, when you tailor your life to live only for today, what you get in the end is just heartbreak. And if you do finally get what it is that you're pursuing, it will eventually just turn to sand in your mouth. It will leave you empty. So even for Christians, I'll just ask you, are you living for today? Or are you living for eternity? Of course it would be easier to live for the present. Of course it's easier to live just for me. That's why Jesus said you have to take up your cross. Because it's costly to live by faith. It's costly to live for eternity. But here's what Jesus would say to you, friends. Here is what He is saying to you. Verse 24. Yes, it's costly. It's costly. But it's also worth it. It's worth it. Lose your self-oriented life now and find true life with the living God in the end. Cross-centered discipleship weighs today in light of the last day. That's Mark number 2. As we think about that eternal perspective, and that's what that is, we, we should note that Jesus continues with the same theme. Look at verse 26. This is where we find the third mark of discipleship. Cross-centered discipleship looks ahead to the glory of Christ. It looks ahead to the glory of Christ. 
Again, Jesus urges His listeners to understand the stakes when it comes to discipleship. Verse 26, For whoever is ashamed of Me and of My words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when He comes in His glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. So there's a cost to discipleship and there is a cost to rejecting Jesus. When the last day comes, and there is a last day, friends, when everybody's going to stand before the Lord. And when that last day comes, those who were ashamed of a crucified Savior will find that He is also ashamed of them. In other words, Jesus, as the judge, will reject those who were ashamed to entrust their lives to a crucified and risen Lord. And that is the striking point in verse 26, friends. Notice that Jesus Himself is the judge. Who's issuing the judgments? Jesus. It's actually a picture of His glory. God, as you know, does not share His glory with anyone. God is jealous for His name. And He does not share His position with anyone. So when Jesus says that He comes with the glory of the Father to issue the final judgment, that's like the curtain being pulled back a little bit and we're getting to see more clearly who this is. This is no mere man. This is the Son of God. This is the judge of the living and the dead. This is the once crucified and now reigning Savior of the church. And therefore, He alone is worthy to receive all honor and praise. And on the very last day of time, friends, every one of us will look Him in the eye and receive His judgment. You see, that's why those who are ashamed are cast out by Jesus. It's because they've rejected the One who alone is worthy to receive all honor and glory. But at the same time, again, the reverse is also true. Verse 26 is a strong warning, but there's also a promise here for the people of God. You see how it works? Those who are ashamed of Christ will be rejected on the final day, but those who trust in Christ, those who are not ashamed of the crucified Savior, those believers will enter into the glory of Jesus Himself. In fact, Jesus hints at this in verse 27. Look there, where He speaks of those who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now, what is Jesus getting at there? Well, He's reminding His disciples that wherever you find the King, you find His kingdom. So the kingdom of God arrives with Jesus. And that means some disciples will get a glimpse of the kingdom's glory in their lifetimes, in Jesus. It it begins with the passage that we'll look at next week with the transfiguration, and it culminates in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost when the reigning King, Jesus, pours out His Spirit on the church. But the point, friends, is that verse 27 is telling Jesus' followers, not only am I getting glory, but I'm taking you with me. I'm bringing you with me into the glory of of God's kingdom. Those who are not ashamed of Christ are headed for glory with the Savior as well. Those who are not ashamed. And that's the question, isn't it? How do we avoid being ashamed of Jesus? 
if those who are ashamed are rejected eternally in hell, and those who are not ashamed receive the glory of God with Christ in the heavenly kingdom, the question is, how do I avoid being ashamed of Jesus? Well, first, friends, not being ashamed of Jesus means trusting Him with your life. It means believing that He alone can save you. That's the most important point here. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, this this is the truth of the text. The way we identify with Jesus is by repenting of our sins and trusting that His blood cleanses us before the Father. That's foundational. I don't want to be ashamed of Jesus? Then trust Him to save you. There is another point, though, in verse 26 that we ought not overlook. It's easy to overlook, but we ought not do so. Notice that Jesus speaks of those who are ashamed of Him. And then you see the next phrase? And of His words. You see that? Verse 26, those who are ashamed of Him and of His words. This is important, friends. Not being ashamed of Jesus means trusting His blood to save you. And it means submitting to His teaching and to the teaching of His apostles. Disciples are doctrinal people, in other words. We submit to Jesus' blood and we submit to Jesus' Word. We confess that Scripture, all 66 books, is the Word of God. That the Bible is the expression of Christ's authority in and over our lives. Not being ashamed of Jesus means submitting to Him by faith and submitting to His Word as authoritative. All of it. Friends, this is where I am gravely, gravely concerned for the church in our day. Like we said last week, many people are fine with Jesus to a point. But when you begin to insist on His teaching, when you... when you begin to stand firm on His Word as authoritative, that's when people recoil. That's when people have a problem. That's when the cost has to be counted. And friends, that's where the cost will be counted in our day. Will we submit to Jesus and to His Word in its entirety? Will we stand firm on the Bible even when every voice around us screams that we must give ground? Will we stand on His Word? Brothers and sisters, what I'm trying to say here is that we need to recover doctrinal commitment as necessary for Christian maturity. We need to recover this idea that holding firm to the faith is not an optional part of discipleship. It's essential to discipleship. You cannot say, I follow Jesus, but I don't like that part of the Bible. You can't say that and be His follower. We confess our allegiance to Jesus and to His words. Friends, just think about it. We do not have the Lord Jesus bodily present with us. So we can't display our allegiance to Him the way that Peter and James and John could by following Him literally with their lives. What do we have? We have His Word. It is His Word. And so we submit ourselves, we display that we're not ashamed of Him. How? By living upon this book. If we reduce Christianity solely to our experience of the faith 
then we open the door to the kind of doctrinal compromise that ends up losing the gospel and being ashamed of Jesus. Let me say that again. If we reduce Christianity merely to our experience of faith, then we open the door to the kind of doctrinal compromise that loses the gospel and ends up being ashamed of Jesus. Listen, this is where Protestant liberalism went off the rails. It reduced Christianity to mere experience. How is Christianity true? Well, because it's true in my heart. Right? It reduced Christianity just to experience. It, it, made, it made Christianity not an objective reality that's rooted in historical truth, but a subjective experience that ends up denying historical truth. It doesn't really matter if the tomb is empty or not. I believe it is. I feel like it is. I feel that the resurrection is true, and therefore Christianity is true. Friends, that's baloney. There's no, there's no Christianity without that. If the tomb's not really, really empty, then we're all really, really fools. If we reduce it merely to the experience of the faith, then we lose the whole thing. This is the mistake of, of Protestant liberalism. And, and we're seeing the same trends in our day. We're seeing the exact same trends. There's nothing new under the sun. The urgency of the sexual revolution, for example, demands that human experience, self-actualization, be the sole criteria of truth. What's happening there? Well, a lot of things are happening. But at the core, it's a shift away from revelation, which is outside of me, and a shift towards what? Experience, which is defined by me. And friends, when you make that shift from revelation to experience, what you lose is everything. You lose the whole thing. That's just one example. But it's enough to make the point. Not being ashamed of Jesus requires not being ashamed of His words of His teaching as given to us in the Scriptures, all 66 books. Brothers and sisters, this is what faithfulness will require in our day. This is what discipleship will demand. Dads and moms, this is what it looks like to disciple your kids. Teach them the faith. And tell them that it's worth their very life. We must declare our trust in Jesus and His cross, and we must declare our submission to Jesus and His Word. The cross and the Word, they go together, and they demand everything from you. And it gives you life in the end. Cross-centered discipleship looks ahead to the glory of Jesus and then stands on His Word. Well, friends, let's try to, let's try to, bring, let's try to bring this together with one... One final reflection on, on discipleship. We've considered the call to self-denial. We looked at the need for eternal perspective. We've savored how the glory of Christ fuels us in discipleship. And oh man, it's fuel. A sweet old lady named Miss Margaret taught me the faith when I was a kid. I was in her Sunday school class for three years. I was the only kid in there for two years. <laughs> the only kid. And she, she taught me that Jesus was God and that His Word was true and that He saves those who trust Him. And she doesn't have any headlines and she's never written a book and nobody's ever tweeted about her. But when she died and went to be with the Lord, she heard, well done, good and faithful servant. Amen. Right? Because she passed on what somebody gave to her. So let, let's do that too. Let's pass, pass on and stand firm on the truth. Okay, let's go back to this.
Last mark, cross-centered discipleship. This is what upholds us as as we seek to follow the Lord. Cross-centered discipleship relies solely upon the work of Christ. That's the fourth mark. It relies solely upon the work of Christ. Behind all of this teaching on discipleship, there stands a glorious reality. And that glorious reality is the obedience of Jesus Christ. We're on the road of discipleship only because Jesus has gone ahead of us and blazed the trail through His life, death, and resurrection. So each piece of verse 23, I want you to look at verse 23, each piece of that verse is possible only because Jesus obeyed the Father in our place. Look at it. We are called to deny ourselves only because Jesus first denied Himself, laying aside His heavenly glory and obedience to the Father. We take up the cross only because Jesus took up His cross, a cross that only He could bear, a cross where He shed His blood for self-oriented sinners like us, a cross where the wrath of God was satisfied and forgiveness was purchased for God's people. And we can lose our lives to find life only because Jesus first lost His life in death in order to secure life for those who were dead and could not live apart from His resurrection. Do you see, do you see it, friends? The Gospel, the Gospel is what undergirds and upholds every step of the disciple's life. Discipleship exists because Jesus went ahead of us in saving power to do what we could not. Or to use the language of the text, discipleship exists. Verse 23 exists because verse 22 came first. That the Christ would suffer. And now you follow Him. Discipleship then leads to life only because of Jesus' work and never because of our own. And so what do we do as we close today? We do this, friends. We worship Him. We worship Him, brothers and sisters, We worship Him with our life by fighting every day for faith. For He alone is worthy of praise. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful to You. We are grateful just in Your mercy, God, that verse 22 does come before verse 23. That it is the suffering of Christ on our behalf that enables us to suffer in commitment to Him to follow Him by faith on the road of discipleship. Father, thank You for the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, oh how we pray, God, that You would help us to stand firm on His Gospel. We pray that You would help us, Father, to be a countercultural church where the message that people hear is not make the most of yourself, but deny yourself. We pray, Father, that we would be people who weigh today in light of eternity and therefore live with the aroma of Christ that calls people to life through Your grace. And oh, how we pray, Father, that our lives would display a clear and marked dependence upon our crucified and risen Savior. Would You do this, God? Would You bring glory to Your Son? We pray in His name. Amen.